When we changed the national anthem, we uh, made Canada an acronym, and the, uh, the <laughs> N stands for neutrino. What are the other letters? I mean, the C for sure stands for Canadarm, but I don't know about the rest of them. Doctor, the podcast where three scientists come together every week and rediscover their love of science. My name is Beth and I am a particle physics PhD student at Sapienza University of Rome. My name is Alistair and I'm a PhD candidate in analytical chemistry at Queen's University. And my name is Sienna. I'm studying neuroscience, also doing a PhD at McGill University in Montreal. And together we are the PhD3 to be. Cool. Okay, it's my week this week, and we all know what that means. That means lots of particle physics. Woohoo! Best favorite. <laughs> um. Okay, so before we dive right in, I need to get a general sense of your particle physics world. No. Okay. All right. So, <laughs> I just I just want to know where I'm pitching this. Okay. Sienna, I feel like maybe your your experience is a bit less than Alistair's, so why don't you go first? Sure. Um, I know that electrons, I know about orbitals, and I know about electrons, and I know about neutrons, and I know about protons, and because I know you, I also know about some, like, subatomic particles, and also because I listen to quarks and quarks, I know about quarks, so... Yeah, but I've never taken a physics... Well, actually, that's not true. I did take physics 101 as well. But I attended like half the classes, so I probably missed the section on particle physics. <laughs> Good job. Perfect student. Okay, that's fine. Alistair, what about you? I think I I know a little bit. Being friends with you, I think I've asked you a lot of stuff about particle physics, so I've learned a lot through you. Um, I have had the opportunity to go to CERN and see some of the cool stuff that they do there. Oh, I'm so jealous. And I remember at the... Ontario Science Museum in Toronto there's a really cool exhibit on subatomic particles like muons and gluons and neutrinos cool I don't um, remember that when we were there I, oh you must remember it they have a they have a chamber a vapor chamber where you can see uh, yeah. the paths of subatomic yeah. particles flying through yeah. you and it's like all the time and constant and your body is just a, like bombarded constantly with subatomic particles. Isn't so that cool? It's super cool, and so I have I have a lot of interest in it, but not a lot of knowledge. So I'm excited to learn more today. All right, hopefully today we're gonna develop some knowledge. Okay, so I'm gonna quickly introduce today's episode. We're gonna be talking about neutrinos, what they are, how they interact, and like the aim of today's episode is to get to neutrino oscillations and understand how it was discovered and especially what it is and why it's so cool. So before before we start talking about neutrinos and oscillations and all these kinds of things, we need to work out what actually is a neutrino. Does anybody know what a neutrino is? Um, can I uh, do a little guess? And this is bad because I should know because you've definitely told me before. But yeah, I mean, I wish I retained information better, but I do not. So 
My guess <laughs> is that a neutrino is like the non-charged electron. Okay, that's not a bad description. Not to be confused with a neutron. Important. Oof. But but I think a neutron is a lot bigger. Yeah, like, a neutron okay. a neutrino is the neutron's baby sister. <laughs> kind okay. of. Yeah, like all of these are very good things. And this is actually a really good place to start um, because when the neutrino was first theorized by Wolfgang Pauli in the 30s, his description of this fundamental particle was basically a mixture of the neutron and the neutrino. So it's really interesting that, like, even almost 100 years later, these two things are... And it's understandable that they are kind of confused and they're like overlapping in people's minds. I feel like we should also explain because people might not even know what a neutron is to overlap it with a neutrino. So what is a neutron? Okay, so I'm I'm about to go into like a description of the standard model. Okay, so the standard model in particle physics is our current understanding of how the world works. And we know that the standard model isn't complete, it's not perfect, but it's like our best guess so far. So in the standard model, there are various, there's basically three types of particles. <clears throat> there are the force carriers, those are bosons. There are quarks, which make up protons and neutrons. And then there are leptons. Okay, so quarks, I've said, make up protons and neutrons which are the particles that are inside the nucleus of an atom, right? Are we good so far? Mm -hmm. Okay, so an atom is used to be thought to be the smallest thing, like it, the name atom means undiv undividable or something like that in Greek. It was meant to be the most basic thing in the world, and then we discovered there was loads of things inside it. There were protons and neutrons inside it, and electrons as well. And then we discovered that inside the protons and the neutrons, there were particles in that. As far as we know, the particles that are inside the protons and neutrons aren't made up of anything, as far as we know. Um, so they're called fundamental particles. That's a section of fundamental particles. They're called quarks. We're probably not going to talk, to talk about them very much today, but they might come up in discussion. The particles that we're really going to focus on today are called leptons. And I don't expect you to have ever heard of a lepton, but you can think of them as, well, there's two types. There are the charged leptons, and then there are neutrinos. So the char charged leptons, you can think of them as electrons and electron-like cousins, okay? So there are three charged leptons. There's the electron, which we all know and love because that's what powers our lights and mm -hmm. our brains and our chemical reactions. <laughs> and there's a muon, which is, it has basically the same properties as an electron, but it's heavier. And then there's a third one called the tau, and that's even heavier than the muon. But you can think of them all as like electrons, basically, as heavy electrons. So all of these charged particles are negatively charged. They all have a charge of one minus, exactly. So they all have one negative charge. Okay, good. Charged leptons, good. So far? Mm-hmm. Okay. Then each of these charged leptons has an associated cousin, their little baby cousin, <laughs> like Sienna says, 
which is a neutrino. And okay, like hopefully by the end of today's episode, we will have a bit of a clearer idea what neutrinos are, why they were theorised to exist, how they were discovered and all this kind of thing, how they behave. But you can think of them as... I wouldn't recommend thinking of them as electrons because electrons have electric charge and neutrinos don't and that's a really important thing. And they're also way, way, way smaller than electrons. Like I'm talking, I don't know how many multiples of 10, like many, many orders of magnitude less massive. So can I just kind of recap what I've understood? Please do. So I take my magnifying glass. I'm looking at an atom of hydrogen with my magnifying glass, which is honestly unheard of for its power of magnification, because in this atom of hydrogen, I can see a proton yeah. in the nucleus, which is a positively charged particle, a large one, a heavy one. Yep. And I can see a neutron, which is also a heavy, large particle compared to other particles in the physics world that is neutrally charged. Yep. And then... Somewhere out in space orbiting around it, I can see an electron, which is smaller than those, negatively charged, made up of... And if I zoom in with my magnifying class, because obviously I can zoom in. So then I can see that this electron, aka one of the leptons, is just chilling in space. And then it might, I might see one of its cousins, the muon, who's slightly heavier, but like also negatively charged. And then in between these guys at a much smaller, smaller size, but also still only one particle, I can see their neutrally charged cousins, the neutrinos. Yes, um, kind of. Yes, in the sense that that is a good description of what all of the particles are. The kind of comes in the sense that, like, if you're looking at your hydrogen atom, you will see the proton and the neutron and the electron. And if you're, like, sitting there in space and you have the capacity to see these things, you might see a muon pop pop into existence you could potentially also see a neutrino pop into existence but it's much much smaller and um you're very unlikely to ever be able to see it well this is a pretty magical magnifying glass i gotta admit (laughs) with your with your magical magnifying glass and i think you've got a good hope (laughs) okay (laughs) yeah I think that's a good description of what each of these particles is. And so there are different flavors of neutrino? Yes, exactly. Okay, I thought neutrinos were all the same. And when we talk about the plural of neutrinos, it's like talking about electrons. Like they're all No, because the same. one is the muon's cousin, and the other is the tau's cousin, and the other is the electron's cousin. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. This is all really important, and like I'm kind of like giving spoilers of what I'm going to go on to talk about, but I think it's important to have a baseline understanding before we go back to the history. So yeah, like Sienna's exactly right that, in fact, you're both exactly right. The flavor is is um, exactly the right technical term for it, and flavor just means type, like. Electrons, muons, and towers are different flavors of charged leptons. And so, say you had a box of frozen muons, electrons, and taus. This would be yeah. Neapolitan particle physics. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> what, is, what is a Neapolitan like ice cream? Like a scoop of lepton. <gasps> you don't know what Neapolitan ice cream is? Like, I feel like I should. It's strawberry, vanilla, and chocolate Ooh. in one Ooh. box. 
That sounds really good. Yeah, it is. Okay, so Alice is right. There are different flavors of these particles, and each charged lepton has an associated neutrino. And basically what that means is that those pairs of particles can interact in ways that, for example, an electron can't interact in that same way with a muon neutrino. Okay. So it's like mm. a family tree, but the family's quite broken up and they don't talk to each other anymore. <laughs> yeah, like they exchange Christmas cards and that's like the limit. We can always rely on Sienna to make a really nice, <laughs> like understandable analogy, no matter how difficult it is. It's only because is. I need to to understand it. <laughs> no, this is good. Okay, we have our family tree, which we're going to call the standard model. And we have an understanding of what leptons are, the charged ones and the neutrinos. All right, then we've got another really important thing to add to the standard model. It's not enough to just have particles that sit there and do nothing. Like if you want to have a dynamic universe in which things actually happen, you have to have ways for the particles to interact with each other, to talk to each other, right? Mm -hmm. That happens through forces. There are four fundamental forces. Can anybody name one? Ooh, I know one. Gravity. Yeah, that's a really good one. That's a really good one. Great movie with Sandra Bullock. I thought that was going to be like a trick question and gravity was going to be like related to one of the types of forces, but not its own force. I'm really relieved to know that this still holds true. No trick questions here. So gravity is a really good one. Sienna, can you give me another one? But Alistair stole the easy one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he did. He stole the easy one. And and he should have a better understanding of another one than you do. So he should really have left gravity for you and taken another one for himself. But I'm going to give you a clue about the one that Alistair should have got. (laughs) Van der Waals. Yes, except except that's a manifestation of this one that I'm thinking of. Oh, um... Electromagnetic forces? Elect- electromagnetism, exactly. Oh, wow, I'm so good. <laughs> good job, Sienna. Okay, so we've got gravity. <laughs> I think we all know what gravity is. It's Newton and apples and trees and falling and planets and, and a movie with And Sandra a movie Bullock. with Sandra Bullock. Of course. Electromagnetism is two forces that are combined into one. You've got electricity and you've got magnetism. There are two more, and I don't know if you'll get them. Okay, all right, here's a clue for both of you. If you are not able to open your jar of peanut butter, you are... Weak. Good, exactly. Oh, there's so weak, weak forces. Force. Oh, is, and then is it, it's the strong force. Yeah, there the you go, Alice, you get two out of four. Good job. Um, Sienna, you also get two out of four, so... Um, we can just name forces weak and strong without describing what they're weak and strong about. <laughs> if you're a particle physicist, you definitely can. <laughs> With flavors and weak and strong forces, I'm beginning to think this might all be made up. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the more that you go into particle phys- physics, the more the names of things will definitely make them seem like they're made up. But I promise you that everything that I tell you will be... Maxwell's own truth. <laughs> it will be it will be Fermi's own truth. <laughs> Thank you, Maxwell and Fermi. Um you're welcome. Okay, where were we? Four forces. Okay. So standard model, we've got bosons that are force carriers. We've got the quarks, which are in protons and neutrons. 
and we've got leptons, charged leptons and neutrinos. Then we've got the four fun fundamental forces. We've got gravity, which is apples and a newton and falling and planets. We've got electromagnetism, which is electricity and magnetism. Then we've got the weak nuclear force, which is basically radioactive decay. Sienna, are we good on what radioactive decay is? Yeah, I um, kind of know okay. it. Approximately. Okay. Things get, their weight decreases over time and they decay into other forms of atoms and yeah, there's a certain decay rate associated with it and they lose like nuclear particles, right? Yeah, okay. So like neutrons? Yeah, basically. So it's kind of important to know what what radioactive decay is for this, for this episode. I'll come back to it in a second. I'm just going to quickly mention the strong force, even though we're not going to talk about it today. The strong force basically is what binds nucleons together, so what binds a proton together and what binds a neutron together. Um, and it's the most responsible force in nuclear fusion. Like, let's put it like that. I thought, I thought, Beth, when you said, when you were talking about the strong force, you were just going to end it at, it's the most responsible force. And I really liked <laughs> that picture in my head of this, like, strong force just holding everything together yes. and being like, I'm responsible. <laughs> it's, it's a morally responsible force. The strong force, we're not going to talk about very much in this episode, but we are going to talk a lot about the weak force, and we are going to talk about radioactive decay and, like, kind of the backwards version of radioactive decay. So we have to have a good understanding of what it is. Basically, <clears throat> in radioactive decay, you have a particle, a nucleon. You can think of it as a nucleus that changes from one nucleus to a different nucleus. So, okay, um, there are three types of radioactive decay. There's alpha, beta, and gamma decay. Gamma decay results in the emission of a photon, so a particle of light called a gamma ray. Okay, fine. We're not really going to talk about it. Let's forget it. Alpha decay is the emission of an alpha particle, which is basically the helium nucleus. So that means you have one nucleus and it spits out two protons and two neutrons and it becomes a completely different element. Okay, again, not very interesting to us, but beta decay is what we need to know about. So in beta decay, you have a neutron that, that decays, that, that changes into a proton. It changes from one... Okay particle to another so it swaps quarks <gasps> that's exactly what it does Sienna. well done I, top marks go to the top of the class i'm a natural at particle physicist okay let's let's test how natural you are at particle physics if i tell you that you have a neutron one minute and a proton the next minute what's the problem that you see there's a missing charge exactly you are a natural at particle physics good job Okay, so um, on the left-hand side of the equation, we've got a neutron, which has zero charge, right? Yeah. On the right-hand side of the equation, we've got a proton, which has one plus charge. So we need how much charge, Alistair? Plus one. Oh, minus one on the right-hand side. <laughs> yeah, you're definitely not going to the top of the class. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you can recover it, though, by telling me which particle has a one minus charge. A lepton. 
Yeah, good. Specifically? An electron? Yeah, exactly. Good, okay. We have a neutron, which goes and becomes a proton, and an electron. And this is interesting. So, just to be clear, the neutron decays into a proton, and in also an electron. Yep, at the same time. This is very interesting, because the proton and the neutron have basically the same mass, and that is about 200 times heavier than the electron. It's much, much heavier than the electron. So, the neutron is just sitting there at rest, chilling out in its nucleus, and it changes into a proton. And the proton, because it's really heavy, it's just sitting there doing nothing, chilling out at rest, okay? But your electron takes away some energy, like it has some kinetic energy, it's moving, it's not just sitting there at rest. And that's important because that's the energy of the reaction, like that's the energy released by the reaction. That's why these reactions are interesting and important and potentially dangerous is because you get a charged particle that comes away with a lot of energy. A quick question. Yep. So if you have a neutron with a a mass of X, let's say a certain mass, and it turns into a proton with a very similar mass, or if not the same mass, if you can't have matter created or destroyed, where does the electron get its mass from? Because an electron has a very small but non-negligible mass. Um, This is a very, very good question. Um, The first thing we have to do is clarify this statement that you made that matter can't be created or destroyed. Okay. There are conservation laws in the universe, so that means there are things in the universe that cannot be created or destroyed and that we assume have been like this since the Big Bang. One of those things is energy. So this concept of matter, like in high school you might have been taught that that mass is constant, that mass is conserved. It's just not true. Like, forget high school physics. Like, it's all oversimplified to the point of being wrong. But what did Einstein say? Einstein said that energy equals uh, mass times the speed of light squared. Actually, this is not quite what Einstein said. Einstein actually said energy squared is equal to mass squared times the speed of light to the fourth power plus... Momentum squared times the speed of light squared. I'm going to say that again. Okay. Energy squared is equal to mass squared times the speed of light to the fourth Mm -hmm. plus momentum squared times the speed of light squared. Okay? Okay. Okay, the speed of light is a constant. We particle physicists are lazy. We work in units that consider the speed of light to be one in these special units so like we consider this the speed of light a separate thing that we're not going to talk about so basically energy squared is equal to mass squared plus momentum squared energy is conserved momentum has to be conserved mass is not conserved so in the 1930s they knew about this fact that like radioactive decay happens and that you get an electron out and they could measure the energy of this electron 
And if you have a system that's going from one thing at rest to another thing at rest and one thing that's moving, then you would expect that the energy taken away by the thing that's moving would always be constant. Let's say you can measure the mass of the original nucleus and you can measure the mass of the nucleus, the daughter nucleus, the, the nucleus that you create at the end of this reaction. And you can see the difference and that difference should be taken away only by this one particle that's moving, right? So that means that this particle should have one specific energy for each reaction. So if you measure the energy taken away by this electron, it should have a nice sharp peak. Clear? Mm -hmm. The problem is that scientists measure this energy, this spectrum of energy, and they find that it doesn't have one nice sharp peak, but that it has some distribution. So it's most likely to be relatively low, but some particles, a few, a small number of particles have um, quite a lot of energy. And that's kind of strange because people are like, well, this doesn't really make sense. The other thing is that we've just said momentum has to be conserved, right? Mm -hmm. And what's momentum? Momentum is velocity and direction? Almost. Shall I tell you? Yes, tell us. <laughs> okay. Momentum is mass times velocity. So we've just said that momentum has to be conserved, and momentum is mass times velocity, right? You have this very energetic particle that has a lot of velocity, and it's going in one direction. And before, you had something that was sitting still and had no momentum at all, right? Because its velocity was zero. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, you've got something else that's basically sitting still and doing nothing, and its velocity is zero, so it's got zero momentum. So you have some momentum going in one direction. What do you have to do to, to balance this momentum, remembering that momentum is a vector? Send one in a different direction. Exactly. Okay, so all of this adds together to be like, well, there must be another particle. Wolfgang Pauli, in 1930, wrote a letter to uh, Lisa Meitner, who I don't know if you've heard of, but she was a very important woman scientist. So Go one to add to our Rosalind Franklins and our Marie Curies. Maybe someday we'll do, do an episode on, on some of these women. Anyway, Wolfgang Pauli, in 1930, wrote a letter to Lisa Meitner and some other nuclear physicists and he starts the letter, Dear Radioactive Ladies and Gentlemen, <laughs> which I, I really like. <laughs> it's the beginning of a letter. <laughs> so he writes this letter because he's like, this particle surely exists, but like nobody's going to believe me if I just go and say, there's this particle that we don't know of and maybe doesn't exist and maybe shouldn't exist, but it looks like maybe it does exist. Can you please support me in my hypothesis, basically, is his thing. So he um, postulates the existence of this particle. And I've read a translation of the letter. And it basically seems like he is not wrong, but not right. <laughs> so he basically confuses to, or not confuses, but he, the particle that he hypothesizes is essentially a combination of the neutron and the neutrino 
Two years after this letter, Chadwick goes and discovers the neutron. So we know that this particle is far too heavy to be the particle that takes away the momentum in beta decay. This is like an Agatha Christie novel, the mystery of the missing particle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So wait, they, with, with beta decay, they knew about the decay before they knew about the neutron? Yes. So they knew that this stuff happened, and what we now say is a proton going to a neutron and an electron and this mystery particle that we'll get to. At the time, they were just like, yeah, it, it happens, and stuff gets produced but we don't know what it is yeah so at the time they well they could see things changing um from one thing to another marie curie must have been working before this as well she must have been working at the end of the 19th century right if i'm not wrong Mm -hmm. and we know that she's famous for her work on radioactivity so they knew that radioactivity existed they even had good models for it i think they had postulated the existence of the neutron they hadn't yet discovered it. They hadn't yet experimentally measured that it existed. But as far as I know, Pauli has assumed that it's the same particle that's responsible for the um, continuous spectrum of beta decay, for this fact that the electron in beta decay doesn't have just one single energy for each particular decay process, but it can have a range of energies. Mm-hmm. So Pauli thought that was because of the neutron... Then when Chadwick discovers the neutron, it's far too heavy for this because if you imagine that you've measured the difference in, in masses of these two things, you've equated it to some amount of energy, then you can say, okay, well, the total energy taken away by the, by the reaction is X amount, okay? X amount of energy is released in the reaction. And then you can measure the amount of energy that you have in the electron, how much energy the electron takes away. And if you get very, very close to this amount of energy that's released in the reaction, then you know that the other particle must be taking away a very, very small amount of energy, right? And again, what did Einstein say, basically? Energy squared is equal to mass squared plus momentum squared. Yeah, very good. So basically, uh, if you have a lot of mass, you also have a lot of energy. And if this, if this very heavy particle takes away a lot of energy, then that means this electron must have less energy, right? Yeah. So if you put these two things together and you're like, I've got a really heavy particle, but I've also got an electron that takes away like all of the energy that I can measure, mm-hmm. then you're like, well, this, this neutron that we've just discovered can't be the particle. So Fermi, who worked at my university, actually, in letters in 1933 and 34, hypothesized that there was another particle, which he called a neutrino, which in Italian means a little neutral particle, a little neutral one. And he says, we conclude that the neutrino mass is zero, or at least small compared to the electron mass. And so this was completely revolutionary at the time and his work was rejected from nature who said that the work contained speculations too remote from reality to be of interest to the reader rough. That's wow. a rough rejection letter yeah it's quite a burn right this is just like you're just in cloud cuckoo land basically 
But he wasn't. Like, spoiler alert, he was right. Before we go on, I'm going to introduce an important concept, and that is the relationship between particles and forces. Um, so, have you guys heard of Richard Feynman? No. Richard Feynman was a physicist in the US in the 20th century. Incredibly intelligent guy. Um, was really important in loads of things. He was a theoretical physicist. Um, and one of his most important, one of his many most important contributions to physics are his Feynman diagrams. And I know this is a podcast, so I can't show a diagram, but Feynman created this system of rules of diagrams that governs how interactions work. So the point is that Feynman diagrams work in vertices and a vertex is like a corner, like it's a point where things come together. And basically at any Feynman vertex, you always have two matter particles and one force carrier. So you can either have two quarks or a quark and a lepton or two leptons and you always have one force carrier. The other important point is, yeah, okay, assuming that energy is conserved and that mass is accounted for in the correct way, if you can have a diagram in one direction, then you can rotate it in any possible direction and it's still valid. So that means that if you have two particles that come in, you start with two particles and you go out with a different particle, then you can... You, if you have particles A and B coming in and you produce particle C, then you can also have particle A and, B, A and C coming in and produce particle, C, P, particle B. Or you can have particles B and C coming in and produce particle A. So, in the 1930s we have a description of what we think a neutrino should be and how we think it should interact and 20 years later, in 1953, there's the first measurement of what are actually anti-neutrinos, um, which I'll explain in a second. Um, so in 1953, they are detected, and in 1956, the experiment is repeated in a slightly different way, um, and the result is confirmed. So what they have done is produced... Um, they've shown that you can take an anti-neutrino, collide it with some matter, and produce a, uh, like, backwards beta decay, if that makes sense. So instead of having a neutron that goes to a, a proton and an electron and a neutrino, you can take the anti-neutrino, as that actually is, you can take the anti-neutrino and collide it with a proton and you can make a neutrino and an anti-electron. Okay, wait, hold on, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Now we're bringing aunties into it and uncles and I... Yeah, I know, I should have explained this at the beginning, I'm sorry. No, it's okay, it's okay, because... As far as I can kind of understand it, if you're going one way from a proton to a neutron and an electron and a neutrino, that's all 
setup. But if you want to go the other way, you got to use the anti ones. Okay, so there are some important things and there are some interesting things here. Um, it's not quite as simple as to say, or, or maybe it's simpler, it's not quite true to say that if you go one way and you have particles, then you have to go, you have to have antiparticles if you go back. Okay. It's not quite that. The point is that anti, anti-electron, also called a positron, is an electron in every way except it has opposite charge, which means that it has a one plus charge instead of one minus charge. But it's still an electron. But it's still, it's still basically an electron. So if you take a proton and you produce a neutron, you have to have an anti-electron instead of an electron, right? Because you've got plus one on the left-hand side, you've got zero on the right-hand side, so you need another plus one to make the charge balance. So we take a neutrino, it's actually an anti-neutrino, and we collide it with a proton, and we make a neutron, a neutron and an anti-electron. Mm-hmm. So, okay, like we said at the beginning, an electron and a, an electron-neutrino have a very close relationship. The muon and the muon-neutrino have a close relationship, tau-tau-neutrino, close relationship. The same relationship is true but like in a mirror let's think of it in a mirror for anti-neutrino anti-electron anti-muon neutrino anti-muon anti-tau neutrino anti-tau okay okay Mm -hmm. so we'll get into some very interesting questions open questions about what an anti-neutrino is at the very end okay so um, in 1953 some experiments were done and they were confirmed in 1956. So they produced loads and loads and loads of nuclear decays. They were basically the opposite type of decay from the one that I said before. Instead of a neutron going to a positron, a neutron going to a proton, electron, and electron neutrino, they instead had a proton going to a neutron, a, an anti-electron, and a anti-electron neutrino. So they had a nuclear reactor that did this. It produced loads and loads of these reactions. And that meant that they could have loads of anti-electron neutrinos produced. And they knew basically which direction they were going in, or at least they could choose a direction where they thought there would be loads of anti-electron neutrinos going in that direction. And because neutrinos only interact through the weak force... And it is very weak. <laughs> As the name implies. They, they, don't, they don't interact very often, which means that you can send, you can have a beam of neutrinos and you can send them through the earth or you can send them through a wall or you can send them through, like you can send them through whatever you want and you can be fairly sure that you will get a lot of them at the end. Like they won't all have stopped. Um, instead, if I threw one of you at the wall, I'm pretty sure you would stop. <laughs> right. Um, luckily, neutrinos aren't people. Yes. So you can just throw them at walls. Neutrinos are not interested in other particles. That's done gathering. They're like little loners. Yeah. So you create loads of them. 
you send them towards a detector and you hope that in this detector they will interact finally and you'll be able to see their interactions. So okay, what do they do? You have an anti-electron neutrino and it interacts with a proton in your detector. So they had a big, big tank of water in which they dissolved, apparently it was 200 litres of water, relatively small by today's standards, with about 40 kilograms of dissolved CdCl2, Alistair, cadmium chloride? Yeah, cadmium chloride. That'd be a really bad pool to swim in. Yeah, um, let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> so they had 200 litres of water with about 40 kilos of cadmium chloride dissolved in the, in the tank. And what happens when the neutrino interacts with the proton is that it produces a neutron and an anti-electron. And the neutron gets captured, it gets combined with the cadmium in the cadmium chloride. Mm -hmm. And that creates an excited nucleus, that means like a nucleus that has like extra energy in it. And it doesn't like that. Like, it's not a fan of having extra energy in it. So it releases some energy in um, gamma decay, which is what we said before, is just when... This it... is a photon. Exactly. Well done, Sienna. Light. <gasps> Wait, so we can measure then... the light. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. So what they did was they had uh, a liquid that when a photon passes through, then it scintillates. It gives off even more light. So you get one particle of light coming in and you get loads and loads of light given off in this scintillator. And then you can detect all this light by detectors called photomultiplier tubes, which basically take the photon and make an, an electric signal out of it. So one photon ends up being a whole bunch of scintillations so you can see it with a photomultiplier tube. Yeah, exactly. Let's recap our history. 1930s, these particles are hypothesized. 1953, they do this experiment with the cadmium chloride and the liquid scintillator, and they find, whoa, what did you know? These particles actually exist. Like, there's a load of, of particles here that we weren't expecting. So that's great. Like, neutrinos have been, their existence has been proved. And this is all very good news. Apparently, they their data showed about three neutrino interactions per hour in the detector. Okay, uh, in 1962, the muon neutrino was found. And then, in fact, in 1975, they find the, the tau, and they're like, well, if you've got two charged leptons and you've got two neutrinos to go along with them, and then you find another charged lepton, and there's got to be another neutrino to go along with it. This is really interesting to me. It's almost like archaeology, where you're like digging, and you're like, okay, well, I found this bone, and I know that it connects to this other bone, so like, we must have this other bone somewhere, or like, you know, you you, you know that you have half of it, so there must be the other half somewhere. Yeah, that's true, and I guess like in archaeology, you find something really, really old, and then you find something a bit less old that's a bit different and you're like oh there must be something in between yeah yeah right? like it it's totally... that same jigsaw puzzle kind of idea except you don't want to throw the fossils at the wall ill-advised i think we're probably the only field that should be throwing anything anywhere 
<laughs> okay. I said that we were working our way towards neutrino oscillation, but I hope that I've given an interesting introduction to what neutrinos are and how they behave. Maybe before we go on, we should like clear up if there are any questions so far. So to recap, neutrinos are the partners of leptons. Yep. And there's three different types of leptons, so there has to be three different types of neutrinos. And there's anti-neutrinos and anti-electrons, which are called positrons, which is more complicated physics than we'll really get into, but basically is useful in the discovery of these neutrino-lepton pairings. Okay, so we've talked about radioactive decay. Um, what's the opposite of radioactive decay? Fission? Fusion. Oh, I get them confused. Yeah, exactly. One of the two. Exactly, fusion. And why does fusion happen? In the sun. Exactly. Okay, so... Um, in 1969, some people wanted to test their understanding of the solar models and of their understanding of neutrinos at the same time. So they wanted to run an experiment to see whether they could understand what happens to neutrinos from the sun. So what they did was they got 100,000 gallons of tetrachloroethylene. That sounds dangerous. <laughs> yeah, it probably is. Ah, oh, physicists. So they, what they did, again, physicists, they take a huge, great big mine in South Dakota, um, <laughs> which luckily is not being used anymore, and they just fill it. They just fill it to the brim with 100,000 gallons of oh my God. cleaning fluid. The environmental scientists must have been so sad. Yeah, the EPA is like over in the corner just crying and they're just like, Shh, we're doing science, we're doing physics. And the EPA is like, but the fish. The soil. What about the fish? The soil, I mean. No, I oh. don't think, they didn't like, I, I will add a disclaimer. I don't think they literally just filled the mine. Like they had a container. Okay. I just pictured them like dumping it down a mine shaft and being like, well, let's measure neutrinos now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is the USA, so, like, it could be. I don't know. Uh-huh. Gotta read the methods more closely on that one. Okay. They take this mine, and they presumably put a container inside, and they fill the container to the brim with 100,000 gallons of tetrachloroethylene. And they are waiting for a reaction between a neutrino and the nucleus of a chlorine atom. And what they expect is when the neutrino interacts with the chlorine atom, the chlorine atoms become the chlorine nucleus becomes argon. Hmm. Because the neutrino interacts with a neutron to make it into a proton and then you've got a nice new nucleus. Because because chlorine is one proton away from becoming argon. On the periodic table, if you look at it, it's right beside argon. So if you just add a proton to chlorine, it becomes argon. That's so interesting. Exactly. So this reaction is looking for electron neutrinos. And that's good. That's fine. Because that's the kind of, the kind of neutrino that you expect to be produced from the sun. 
So you're like, okay, we have some idea of how the sun works, how many fusion events we expect to happen in the sun per day or second or week or year or however long. So you have a certain number that you expect of these events and each event produces an electron neutrino and you say, well, there's nothing to stop the electron neutrino between the sun and here. You calculate how many events you think there are going to be. You calculate the fraction of events that are going to provide neutrinos in your direction. You calculate the number of those neutrinos that you expect to interact in your detector and you're like, this is the number of chlorine atoms that we expect to turn into argon atoms in X amount of time. So what they did was they, every few months, they took the, the fluid and they measured how much argon they had in the fluid as opposed to chlorine. And then they can count how many neutrinos have, inter have interacted in the, in the liquid to produce this number, of, this number of argon atoms. And they compare it to the amount they expect and they find that it's actually less than a half of the number of neutrinos that they expect to be coming from the sun. <gasps> oh no. And they're like, what on earth is going on here, right? Like, Where did they go? Yeah, yeah, what happened to them? We're missing them. We, we want those neutrinos. So everybody's scratching their heads and they're like, is the solar model wrong? Like, have we got everything wrong? And they're like, no, we don't think so. So then they start thinking, well, maybe these neutrinos have, like, somehow morphed into something that we can't understand. Um, so again, this was 1969 they started taking data. In 1999, so another 30 years before this problem starts to be solved, and this is where Canada comes to the rescue. Yes! We're so looking <laughs> forward to this point. <laughs> We're almost at the end. The, did um, you know the N in Canada stands for a neutrino? <laughs> it's true. Wow, that's crazy. We're now in Sudbury, Ontario, and there's a, there's a lab up there called the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory, which is called SNOW, the SNOW Lab. And they took data between 1999 and 2006. And they had a three-pronged approach to their detection. They used heavy water in their detector. And chemist, heavy water? So heavy water is water that instead of having hydrogen, it has what's called deuterium. And deuterium is just a hydrogen atom with an extra neutron. So it's basically hydrogen, but just heavier because a neutron has mass. So instead of being H2O, it's D2O. Ding! Fantastic explanation. So they've got a very big ball, basically, that's filled with heavy water. And they are looking for interactions of three types. They're looking for what's called charged current interactions, neutral current interactions, and elastic scattering. Okay, we'll take them in order. Charged current is basically what we've been talking about so far. So it can be inverse beta decay, it can be called, and it's basically where you have an electron, an electron neutrino, and it interacts with a neutron to produce a proton and an electron. 
Okay, the solar neutrinos are all electron neutrinos, so they can all presumably take part in this, this particular interaction. So you can measure the number of specifically electron neutrinos that you expect to see. Then there's the neutral current way of measuring, of detecting neutrinos. And this is basically um, where neutrino comes in, it imparts some momentum to the deuteron, which is the nucleus, the, the proton and the neutron inside the deuterium, the like heavy hydrogen. So the neutrino comes in, it gives some momentum to these two particles, to this bound state, and it splits them apart. And in this process, it produces the, pro the process produces photons, and these photons can be detected by photomultiplier tubes. Then there's elastic scattering on electrons, and that's basically if a neutrino hits the whole atom of a of heavy water. Of, if the neutrino hits this atom with enough energy, it can transfer momentum to the electron of the atom and remove it from the atom, and then this electron can be detected. So then the neutrino still exists, it hasn't gone anywhere, it hasn't produced anything, it's just given some of its momentum to the electron, the electron has taken that momentum and run with it basically. The detection of the electron is done via Cherenkov radiation. So to understand Cherenkov radiation we have to understand what refractive index is. Refraction is the process that makes your straw look, look like it's broken if you put it in water. And it's also the process that if you shine light into a prism, it separates into all of its different colours. And the reason is that light in a vacuum travels at a constant speed, this much we know. But if you send it through a material that isn't a vacuum, then its speed will be different. And that can be different for different wavelengths. So um, the refractive index is the ratio of the speed of light in a vacuum to the speed of light in a particular material. And that's important just to say that light in a particular material doesn't always travel at the speed of light, which is the speed of light in a vacuum, which is the unbreakable speed limit. So if you have a particle a charged particle that's traveling through a transparent material like water or heavy water then if this particle travels faster than the speed of light in the material then it produces a cone of radiation a cone of light basically and this is called Cherenkov radiation so that means that if you have um, a neutrino coming in to your detector and it scatters on an electron and it gives the electron enough energy to get out of that atom and travel really fast through this water then it will produce a nice cone of light which you can then again detect with your photomultipliers your light detectors cool okay so charged current is the one we've been talking about forever and that can only happen with electron neutrinos mm -hmm. neutral current and elastic scattering those 
don't have any particular requirements on the type of neutrino that interact in those ways. So that means that through all of these ways, you can, in principle, detect all of the different types of neutrinos. And if you're clever enough, you can even distinguish between them. Cool. So that means that you should be able to tell if you've just lost neutrinos <laughs> or if they've morphed into some other kind of neutrino or what's happened to them. And what they found in this experiment was that there are the same number of neutrinos, but they're not all electron neutrinos. Some of these neutrinos have started off as electron neutrinos and have now turned into muon neutrinos and tau neutrinos. Wait, wait, this is this is groundbreaking stuff. This is groundbreaking stuff. Because it's really weird, right? That, like, you start off with this particle that you know has some specific set of properties, and then, like, suddenly, a few millions of miles later, I don't know how, I don't know what the distance is between here and the sun, but, like, all of this distance later, somehow this particle is not the same particle that you started off with. It's suddenly a random other particle. Like, if I give you some chocolate ice cream, right, and I'm like, here you go, here's some chocolate ice cream. Like, let's say you come to Rome, which I really hope you will, and I take you around Rome, and then you're getting back on the plane, and I'm like, here's some chocolate ice cream for your journey. You don't expect that by the time you touch down in Canada, this chocolate ice cream has suddenly turned into strawberry ice cream. Like, you expect it yeah. to probably be in your stomach by this point. But, like... Knowing how fast I last with ice cream, yeah, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not going to just randomly change into something completely different along the way. It's not going to change its flavor. Exactly. And this is what neutrinos do. Yeah. And this is, like, this is incredible stuff so this then earns art mcdonald and takaki kaita i hope that's how you pronounce it they share the nobel prize in 2015 for their um for their work on theorizing and describing and detecting this this phenomenon then of course art mcdonald was from is from worked at queens right yeah, yeah, he's he's a physics professor at Queen's. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we have arrived at the point, like, neutrinos oscillate. This is really weird, and, like, it takes a lot of understanding from a physics perspective, and I won't go into all of the quantum mechanics of it, but it poses some really interesting open questions, um... When you describe this interaction, when you when you calculate the probabilities that one particle is going to change to another, one of the things that comes out of it is that not all of the particles, not all of these neutrinos can have the same mass. And so that means they can't all have zero mass. And so physicists like symmetry. We like things that are similar to each other and therefore it seems unlikely that one type of neutrino has zero mass and the other two have some amount of mass but we still don't know what the neutrino masses are and we don't have a particularly good way we don't have a way that we think is going to be successful in the near future to find out what the masses are 
depending on exactly what the the neutrino masses are, then it could mean that the way that they get mass, so the thing in the universe that gives them mass is completely different to anything else that we know of. Like, most particles get their mass from the Higgs boson, basically, very basically. Right. But these particles are so much lighter. They are, like... We still don't know what their masses are, but we know that they're really, really, really small. Like, really small. And Mm -hmm. that just suggests to us that there's something different going on here. Okay. I hope that that has given an interesting explanation of neutrinos. Yeah, no, it was, like, very in-depth, but I think I learned a lot, which was good. Okay, well, let's see how much you've learned. Let's see how much you've learned. I have a short quiz for you. Woohoo! Okay. Buzz in if you know the answer. Can I hear your buzzes, Alistair? Quack! <laughs> Sienna? Beep beep. Okay, great. Question number one What is a neutrino? Quack. Beep beep. <laughs> I just choked on my spit there. Go ahead, I Sienna. Think I, heard, I think I heard Alistair first. Oh, okay. Um, a neutrino is a, a particle that exists in conjunction with leptons and can exist as electron neutrinos or anti-electron neutrinos, uh, muon neutrinos or anti-muon neutrinos, and tau or anti-tau neutrinos. Yeah, that was a good answer. Sienna, do you have anything to add? Um, no, I think that was going to be pretty much my exact answer as well, although I was going to lead about the anti ones because we don't really know if they're anti or not. Yeah, it's true. The anti it's and true. uncle neutral. I would also, very... <laughs> I would also add that they're, they're not charged. Yeah, they are uncharged. Have mass, question mark? Who knows? Great. That's uh, between you both. You get to both go to the top of the class. Yeah. Um, what was the solar neutrino problem? Beep beep. Go, Sienna. Okay, the solar neutrino problem was that we know that the sun is kind of like this big nuclear reactor thing, producing a lot of neutrinos based on this one type of radioactive decay, I'm assuming, or fusion. I guess it's fusion in the sun. It's fusion, yep. One type of fusion, which is opposite of decay, but one type of fusion should produce a lot of electron neutrinos, but by the time we were measuring them down here on Earth, a million miles or so, away from the sun. I don't really know. I don't keep that figure in my head. Neither do I. (laughs) (laughs) But an expanse, large expanse away from the sun where they were produced when we were measuring them here, they got here and we were like, where have they all gone? We're only measuring like less than half of what we would expect. And as physicists, we're pretty okay at predicting expectations based on equations and all this stuff. So at least it should be closer to what we predicted. So then the Canadians came in and were like, well, what if we try and detect all of the neutrinos at once with subtle ways of differentiating between the types that we're detecting. And then they found that by the time the neutrinos were getting to Earth, if you added them all up, all of the different types of neutrinos, the different flavors, so to speak, strawberry, vanilla, and chocolate, I like to think of them as, um, (laughs) if you add all of those up, then you have enough neutrinos to be produced by the sun. But the sun is only supposed to be producing vanilla neutrinos. So clearly, some of the vanilla neutrinos were turning into strawberry and chocolate neutrinos on their way to the Earth. And we don't know why this is. We just call it to say that they oscillate between strawberry, vanilla, and chocolate. Would you like to know? Would you like to know which one is assigned to each flavor in my mind? Yes. I would love to know that. So I think of vanilla as like the base. 
ice cream flavor. So this is like the most bare bones. So I associate that with like the smallest neutrino. So the electron neutrino. Okay, next we have chocolate because chocolate is like the next go-to flavor after vanilla. And so chocolate is gonna be the muon neutrino because you know, it's not quite vanilla, but it's, it's pretty close. It's a pretty, also kind of like a base ice cream. Now, strawberry came out of nowhere. I don't know who invented strawberry ice cream, but it requires <laughs> vanilla ice cream. And then it also just requires like a whole other thing, strawberries. So it would be the heaviest neutrino of all, making it the Tau neutrino. Thank you for listening. This is my TED talk. <laughs> <laughs> I have no complaints there. Sienna, that was such a fantastic description. That was also answering two I've been thinking about one. that a lot <laughs> this whole podcast. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> what would an electron neutrino taste like? Definitely vanilla. <laughs> well, now I know. If Proving I ever... once again that science is delicious. Exactly. So if you're ever sitting there to yourself and you suddenly get a whiff of vanilla going through your mouth, you can be sure that was an electron neutrino. <laughs> You just detected an electron neutrino. Good for you. Okay, great. Question number three. We only have two more questions, so... Question number three. What is oscillation? Wah. Go. Um, oscillation is the fluctuation between one state and another, or potentially yeah. three different states. Yeah, that's a okay. good answer. Thank you. Okay, question number four. And this is not a um, sudden death question, so I will get each of your answers in turn. Ooh, okay. Question number four. What is your favorite neutrino flavor? <laughs> <laughs> well, after I've described them all as ice cream flavors, how am I not supposed to just pick my favorite ice cream flavor? I think that's a very logical way of picking your favorite neutrino flavor. Okay, um, I'll go first. My favorite neutrino flavor is obviously going to be a muon neutrino because they taste like chocolate. That is the correct answer. Also, <laughs> also, electrons are like fine and well and dandy and so are taus, but I had never really heard of taus before now and I don't really like um, things named after Greek letters because they bore me. <laughs> electrons I've known about for a while and so therefore they also bore me but muon I think is like an incredible use of both like a Greek letter mu but also the like classical ending of a any sort of particle like a proton or an electron or a neutron or a, I can't think of any more so they've taken this great ending that pretty much means to me particle and they put it at the end of a Greek letter, which makes it much more exciting and interesting. And it also kind of sounds like a cat. So best neutrino, the muon neutrino. Also best lepton is the muon, but you know. Uh, Alistair, what's your favorite neutrino flavor? Um, well, Sienna, while I respect your decision <gasps> and choices, I'm going to have to say my favorite uh, ice cream flavor is vanilla. Uh, and You're so vanilla. <laughs> <laughs> because electrons are really fascinating and really important in chemistry. Not that muons and taus aren't. They're just not often <laughs> talked about in chemistry. Well, my favorite neutrino flavor, I think, is muons yeah. as well. Partly because of chocolate and also because there's some very interesting research about muon uh, storage rings, which could... <laughs> 
be used for to create muon neutrino beams which could be used for very interesting neutrino experiments in the future so cool muon neutrinos are very can't cool. wait to see you running those experiments beth in the future yeah i'm gonna be at the head of them best long head of the muon department <laughs> your acronym that you invent better end up being chocolate I'll give it a go. Just make it work. I don't know how. Canadian hydrogen oscillation. Uh, something that starts with the C. Collaboration. Canadian collaboration. Of. Lepton. Lepton. Academics. And. Taos. And Taos. Everywhere. Leptons. Yeah. What was it? Um. <laughs> Yeah, that was good. Shall we wrap her up with a catchy outro? Yes. Great. So thank you guys for participating in my in my episode today. This has been Not Yet a Doctor. I'm Beth. I'm Alistair. And my name is Sienna. We hope that you will join in next time. 